You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, America runs on McLarge Huge. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLarge Huge. I am, I am 50% caffeine at all times. I'm also I, uh, uh, fat and Swedish sugar. <laughs> the donut that is uh, something I enjoy about going to visit you, which why I'll be doing again this weekend. Yes, uh, it is the absolute heroic amounts of coffee that we consume. <laughs> <laughs> we we do support several small villages in Colombia. Yeah, I try to limit myself to like two cups of coffee a day when I'm home. But it's kind of like when you go on vacation and diets don't count when you're on vacation. Right. Well, that doesn't count when I'm at your house. True. It's not like I'm not the person who's just waving the coffee in front of you. It's because I'm vibrating because I'm full of caffeine. <laughs> but I'm like, want more coffee, Bill? And you're like, okay. <laughs> you're going to make more coffee, right? <sighs> right? You want to go for a walk? You want to walk the dog? You want to walk the dog? Let's go for a walk. Let's walk the dog. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Poor Oreo is like, please, no more. My legs. Stop pouring coffee in the dog's bowl. Right, 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 right. Uh, Hey, Jeff, I heard we had a letter this week. We do. We we received a very nice letter from somebody to the Instagram. The letter comes to us from a listener named Jill from Rhode Island. And she writes in to say, I'm catching up on Twibbly, and I just want to say, I really appreciate the conversations you guys have at the start of each show. I think that I personally get a lot out of listening to it. I'm listening to an episode from April where you two are talking about political jokes, and Jeff, that's me, made the comment about not seeing the point in wasting time, talent, and energy on something with a short shelf life, which was something I really appreciated. Well, we really appreciate you too, Jill from Rhode Island. Uh, Jill with one L, no relation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep, I was uh, just out in Canada uh, mm-hmm. this past weekend, and I pitched the show a little bit. I I really should bring the business cards with me. I had a big stack of them set to go, but I just I forgot to I forgot to pack them. Mm-hmm. But I did pitch the podcast to a few people, and whenever I tell people about the show, that's something that I always say. I was like, "Say, do you like politics?" And usually everybody kind of gets tense, and I'm like. Good, because I hate talking politics, and we refuse to talk politics on the show. And then yes. they kind of like let out a sigh of relief, and then I continue to sell uh, and pitch. Right. There's enough. There's really enough. There's so many podcasts out there that talk about politics. We don't, you don't need another one. You need us. So we sometimes bump into it, but that's 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 a conversation you have with a person that you're friends with in an environment that doesn't have a ton of strangers listening to it. Like, right. why would the world really care what Jeff McLarge huge thinks about, you know, the price of tea in China or something at this point? Right. Because it it's just going to get subsumed into the into the the general wave of whatever discourse is going on. Yeah, and you know, political ideals 
wave to and fro, as it were. We are going to touch upon that a little bit later on. You know, spoiler, spoiler. But like we always say, we're not talking politics. We're talking history. Right. There is no controversy in the fact that Nixon put a bowling alley in the in the White House basement. He did it. Or that dank whale can't spell potato. Yeah, that's right. All right. So before we go on to the show proper and the proper way to spell potato, uh, we do have the award-winning, very popular, and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh, uh-oh. Wait. All right. I, wait. I, I want to be reminded that I have I, – I'm on a streak. Am I not? Yes. Yeah, okay. you have two in a row. And that doesn't mean I'm running around with my clothes off. It means that I have two in a row. Right. We're working our way towards a possible three in a row, which I think would be either the record or a tie. Mm, I agree. Tie for the record. So here we go, Jeff. If I'm going to write down on a piece of paper an interrobang, can you describe what I just drew? Hi. Well, I guess we will test out my chops with regard to this at the end of the show. Uh, oh, I'm such I, an but, idiot. But, I, but, I, but I believe I can. Yeah, you're an author. You're probably going to know that now that I think about it. Uh, I'll get you next week with something better. All right. I'm sure you anyway, will. Anyway, this is the week beginning June the 12th, and it is your turn to start. June 12th, 1923, Harry Houdini, perhaps the most legendary of America's escape artists from the time when escape artists were super popular, frees himself from a straitjacket while being suspended upside down. 40 feet above the ground in New York City. So not much room to make a mistake and become street pizza. And he did it. And he did not become street pizza. He got he got off and came down. I bet you could probably find a, a film of that. All right. Based on well, the time well, that it was it took place. Yes, there is film of that. A couple of things about that incident and Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini had three eras in his career. First mm-hmm. era was, he was known as the, the master of cards. He was, you know, a, an illusionist. He was a magician. Right. Second, third of his career was the escape artist stuff. And then the final third was him just exposing psychics and mediums because they were, you know, elaborate magicians and trying to soak people out of money. But and, Wait, what? You know what's the most ironic thing about that is that third part of his career, it's still going on because it started after he died. Wasn't no. he supposed to tell his wife something from yeah. beyond the grave and she was the one he, who was de- sort of debunking the, the uh, mediums because whatever yes. it was, he said he was going to tell her they never figured out what that was? Yes, they had a code. They had a code that nobody ever s- shot back. But no, he spent a good 10 years exposing psychics and mediums. Uh, but anyway, we're talking about the escape. Right. That escape in particular... Uh, he had no chance of becoming street pizza, as you put it, because he was bolted to the board that was being uh, suspended above the street. Oh, okay. So, yeah, he had no chance of being, uh, you know, falling to his death. It just looked more dramatic. So, as he put it, he goes, what is the difference of me being four inches off the ground or 40 feet off the ground? It's still the same, you know, uh, trick. It's still the same process. Right. And the other thing about that is, Escaping from a straight jacket is actually easier when you're upside down. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, I've, I've never done the straight jacket escape either, but I love magic and I've watched a bunch of documentaries about Harry Houdini and that part comes up quite a bit that 
you know, escaping from a straitjacket is actually easier when you're upside down, just with, you know, the way your body is positioned, which hey, is fun. I suppose it adds to the drama, too. I would yeah. think that the argument is like, well, the process is the same whether I do it four inches off the ground or 40 feet off the ground. But yes, your audience is going to be a lot smaller if you're doing it four inches off the ground. Yeah. I would think. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great, Hank. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. This doesn't look we'll very dangerous. Well, you try and get out of this thing. Yeah, we'll be down the street if you need us. Uh, actually, <laughs> right, I, exactly. Yeah, I was just in Canada, as I mentioned before, and I actually went by, it's a Best Buy store now, but at uh -huh. one time that was the Princess Theater, and that is where Harry Houdini received what ultimately ended up being a fatal punch in the stomach. So moving on to the 13th. June the 13th, 1995, Alanis Morissette releases her seminal album, Jagged Little Pill, uh, an album with many singles, many famous songs, and honestly, I'm not familiar with really any of it. Well, she's funny because she kind of crossed over from Canadian television into pop music. It's not an unusual trajectory for, for pop music, right? So, yes, uh, yeah, yeah. She was on You Can't Do That on Television, I think was the show that she so, was on. Yes. Yep. And I, I remember watching that show on Nickelodeon, but I don't remember her being on it only because I was like the same age as the kids on that show. And right. You know, I so think she I went like, by a different name too. I think she, they called her Allie or something. She made the transition to, to putting out a couple of dance records or pop records. And then I don't know which producer she worked with that helped pull together jagged little pill, but it's a lot of like really personal and deeper songs that resonated really hard with audiences in the United States in the demographic of that like radio-friendly alternative environment that had just happened, just started to bubble out and become really popular in 1995. Yeah. Now, in the past, we've talked about, you and I have talked about how Pink Floyd, The Wall, is the perfect album for an angry 13- or 14-year-old boy. Yes. I will put it forward that Jagged Little Pill... You know, the perfect uh, album for a slightly older, I would say, you know, 17 into early 20s girls, uh, angry girls. You know, uh, there's a lot of anthem or anth anthemic. Is that the word I'm looking for? That That is the word you're looking for. Yeah. A lot of anthemic kind of songs over here for the, the girl that's, you know, got a lot going on. You know, got some angry stuff going. You ought to know. You know, that's a pretty angry song. It is. You know, she was in good company in 95 when that song came out. That was right at the beginning of, I'm not going to say necessarily angry girl music, but there were a lot of, of women in that demographic, the age demographic that were hitting the alternative charts hard. Um, right. And she, she fit in really well with them and was more aggressive than the sort of expected, like, think of like Jewel, right? Same Same time right. period way softer and more focused on less angsty things. And then there's Alanis Morissette, who was, it was, that was like hard rock and roll. It was. In that time frame, you know, prior to 1995, it's not like angry girls didn't exist before, you know, 1995. I mean, Wendy O. Williams was alive, but. Right. Yeah, but not, she wasn't getting airplay. <laughs> right, exactly. You were, you were not, hearing her on the radio. Right, not on American Top 40 radio. This album actually came up in my album of the day last year or the year before. And, I mean, this isn't really, you know, my kind of music, but it was fine. It was some... I didn't hate it. It's just this is not my my genre. 
I'm, I am not now, nor have I ever been an angry 17-year-old girl, so there wasn't a lot of connection <laughs> for me. I, I think it falls... It was fine. It, I think it falls in really well with its contemporaries. So, 95 was like a big, big years for Pearl Jam, big years for Alice in Chains, and that style of music, a little bit darker, a little bit harder, but this was a really nice dovetail into that. And that, I think, was would have been an entry point for a lot of younger listeners to go from Alanis Morissette to get the idea of like what angry music was and then drift into this sort of grungier stuff that was around at the time. And Super popular. Alanis Morissette still plays every once in a while. I remember she did a gig, you know, at Great Woods or whatever a couple of years ago. And a lot of my Gen X friends and, you know, elder millennial friends were just like salivating at the, that their goddess was going to be playing. Like, the, the, you know, the the Sakaya's return, so to speak. Right, right. You know, right, right, they're right, all right. very, very happy about it. And, and Alanis Morissette did an excellent job playing God in Kevin Smith's Dogma. Remember that? Yes, where she made the sound... Yep. I think that was her only line yep. uh, in that film. All right, let's go on to the 14th. June 14th, 1881. The player piano is patented by a guy named John McTammany out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. This does not sound like a big deal, but this is the first thing that's not a music box you can get where you can subscribe to and listen to popular songs, and I'm saying popular songs with my air quotes, of mm -hmm. the day without having to learn to play the piano, to play them off of sheet music. So a player piano effectively is like a record player, but it's a piano, yep. uh, often installed in bars and lounges and saloons and other places and rich people's homes and middle-class homes too, giving the occupants and the people that are there the ability to listen to the day's popular music off of a roll of paper with holes in it. So it works similar to a music box, but it plays the yeah. piano. You'll see those in like old cartoons. Uh, the one that sticks out in my mind the most is Walt Disney's Three Little Pigs. It right. was like a, a player piano in that one. And yeah, it was just a roll of uh, paper with punched holes in it that would you know, mechanically trigger the keys to play the songs. I was at a big outdoor flea market not all that long ago and they had player piano rolls over there for sale. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know what you're going to do with them, but that's kind of cool. It's, you know, it's not like they were new. They were antique player piano rolls. Right. Oh, well, there are still player pianos out there in the marketplace. You don't find them. It's not like you'll walk into a bar typically and say, like, oh, my gosh, they've got a player piano here. Oh, let me put on the, you know, 54th Street rag or anything like that. But right. you'll see you'll see them. They come up in Facebook Messenger, or not Facebook Messenger, Facebook Marketplace, and other places that sell secondhand stuff and antiques. And it's generally like player piano. We think it works. Bring eight friends. It weighs four thousand tons to move for free. Yep. And it's but out you can of still, tune. you can still find them. And I'm out of horrifically out of tune as far as we can is, tell. Yeah. And at that point, they're probably so horrifically out of tune that they'll never be put back in tune ever again. That's the first use of popular music that didn't involve you having to learn to play the song to hear it. Sure. It sort of sets the example for every form of recorded music that would come after that. It can play a full song, not part of a song like a music box, but the whole thing. And the technology would go on to power calliopes and be used in some amusement park rides at the time and other things because the technology was expandable to other applications 
physical applications that needed a piece of recorded music that was always the same and longer than 10 seconds long. Was You Ought to Know ever available? Did Nana sit piano side say, and all you're thinking <laughs> of me when you f her? <laughs> I'm pretty sure no, uh, only because I think that uh, Alanis Morissette's great-great-grandmother, who would have been singing that song, was probably not a piano chanteuse. All right. Uh, so moving on to June the 15th of 1915, another old one. American cartoonist, and this guy's name is hard to say. It sounds like you're making fun of somebody. American <laughs> cartoonist Earl Hurd applies for a patent for a technique which is known as cell animation. Ah, yes. Yep. Uh, which was the standard for cartoons pretty much up until CGI just took over. Until, you know, until video killed the radio star, as they say. Mm -hmm. uh, so what you do is you have your background, and then you have whatever character you're going to have over it on a piece of transparent paper that goes over the background. Right. So you don't have to animate every single image on every single frame you can layer it and layer it and layer it on top of it and right. if you go and you look at like the Hanna-Barbera cartoons especially like the Flintstones mm -hmm. you'll see just like Fred's head just hold perfectly still and the only thing that moves on it is the mouth that's right. a part of cell animation yeah it's also um how rotoscoping works where they would take a, a filmed piece of media and then trace the media onto the cell and then animate yes. the cell so that you could capture much more lifelike movement. It was used in some some Disney elements of like when Cinderella dances, that was a little bit of rotoscoping, but it became yeah, really popular well. later. Yeah, it became really popular later in like the 1970s with guys like uh, who we talked about last week, Ralph Bakshi. All right, moving on to the 16th. June 16th, 1980. The film The Blues Brothers, which my dad refused to take me to see, starring Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, premieres in Chicago. A film that is now synonymous with and probably attached to forever, Chicago. Yes, absolutely. I've visited Chicago, and yeah, it's very easy to get people talking about uh, you know the Blues Brothers. Mm -hmm. That is a fantastic movie and arguably the best soundtrack ever. <laughs> I, I, I do like the soundtrack quite a bit. That was my introduction to Cab Calloway as a human being. I had seen him in cartoons previously, but I didn't know who he was until I saw the Minnie the Moochers segment. Cell animated cartoons, Jeff? Probably. And rotoscoped, <laughs> I think. Some of his dances were rotoscoped as well. Sure. I think a lot... I mean, we were both like 10 years old, uh, 11 years old when that movie came out. So I think a lot of people in Generation X, that movie was our first introduction to... A lot of really cool music that wasn't necessarily rock and roll. I, I think so. I remember Soul Man out before the film, and that ran sure. through my friend group in my neighborhood as a single. So we would all listen to the same kind of records. I had heard that one and got my dad to buy the single of Soul Man for us when we were kids. And that was, I think, a year or two years before the film came out. Because they were, had already become characters on Saturday Night Live by then. I remember Carrie Fisher <laughs> being very excited because Princess Leia was in that movie. She right. had a very funny role as the uh, the jilted lover of Jake Blues. <laughs> I was covered in Burt, baby. Yeah. 
Uh, your friend and mine, former War Song Ever alumni, Joe Walsh, is in that movie. He is the first prisoner to get up and start dancing in the closing oh. sequence. Oh, I didn't realize that was him. I have yep, to go back so and watch it again just to see that. And yep. Spielberg was in there, too. He did a cameo as the tax collector at the, uh, yes. the, the office. A friend of mine, uh, Nicole, who should be a listener, Nicole, she had never seen the Blues Brothers. And she's not really a music person. If she's any kind of music person, she prefers country music. So this movie was never kind of like on her radar. And I was like, you really need to see this movie. And she's like, eh, I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. So I sent her a clip from YouTube, the Shake Your Tail Feather dance scene. Yes. That whole scene is phenomenal. And it's short, too. The song's only like two minutes long. Right. Uh, you know, with Ray Charles going down the, the, the list of the Watusi and what about mm -hmm. the flip and all that stuff. I sent her that clip on YouTube and she immediately messaged me back. She's like, okay, I need to see this movie. I'm like, I know you do. Everybody needs to see this movie. It is <laughs> one of the all-time greats. Yeah. I have the director's cut, which you have to watch in like four-hour increments. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not interested in, in like, Landis's cocaine-fueled, like, don't edit anything uh, approach to filmmaking <laughs> in 1980. I, you know what? I'll, I'll stick with the one that the editor managed. <laughs> Do you have a favorite, like, line or part of that movie? One, the my favorite song, I'll say that. My favorite mm -hmm. song on the soundtrack is their version of Give Me Some Lovin' from the Spencer Davis group. Yep. And it upsets me greatly that that scene cuts the song very short. I'm glad right. that the whole song exists on the soundtrack because they barely even get going in the movie. My favorite scene in that film is when they play at the Country and Western Bar. And there's there's two segments. One is when they ask what kind of music do they play. And the yep. bartender says, well, we got both kinds. We got Country and Western. Just, that's literally been in my the same scene I'm talking about. <laughs> is it, that's been in my vernacular since, literally since that film, uh, since I saw that film. And I saw it on cable. And the other yep. one is the they all they can play at that bar is rawhide and not get killed. So they just keep yep. playing it over and over and over again for the whole set until they do yep. stand by your man. It's super <laughs> super funny. Uh, that bar is actually in Kokomo, Indiana. They kind of like mention that, and I have friends that live in Kokomo, Indiana. Ah, uh -huh. and I, I actually made mention that that's the bar, and they're like, "Well, I don't know what that bar is. I'm just you know they they didn't realize that that scene." takes place mm -hmm. in their hometown but there it is yeah my other favorite is the i hate illinois nazis scene that's so funny <laughs> i hate illinois nazis so that that part is super funny who sang stand by your man originally tammy wynette oh okay i thought it was june 17th 1973 dolly parton who ah. could very well have sang stand by your mind at one point or another in her career oh i'm but sure she she has i'm sure she has in 1973 she records her song i will always love you which was uh recorded for rca in nashville mm -hmm. most famously that song was a enormous hit and the bane of my spinal cord uh, for <laughs> for uh, your friend of mine, Whitney Houston. Yeah, it wasn't that it was a bad recording or anything. I mean, her version of that song is, is beautiful. And when I hear it now, I can hear the artistry in, in the Whitney Houston version. And don't get me wrong, I love Dolly Parton's version. I think it's adorable. It's a wonderful piece of music. But yeah. There's something about the way that Whitney Houston's voice is able to just lift that thing into the stratosphere that I can appreciate now. When it was on the bloody radio every four minutes, I could not appreciate it then. I thought it was like the first time I was like, wow, this song is really pretty. 
and jump ahead for like five days. It's like, is is this the format the radio is now? It's just this song over and over again. Is like, does that what we're gonna just do that from now on? <laughs> it's just Whitney Houston, W H I T. Like, I don't understand. And <laughs> and and it was it just went on and on. It was it was like a number one song for a uh, hundred and fifty months. It felt like it was constantly it, yeah, constantly was, being played. It was popular, yeah, forever. The Whitney Houston version. Mm-hmm. The Dolly Parton version's a little more stripped down, a little more less produced, probably because it's, you know, 20 years prior uh, to Wendy Houston's version. Mm. And wasn't there some, like, crazy incidents with that song? Like, didn't somebody, like, assault somebody because they wouldn't stop playing it? (laughs) When I lived in England and worked in the cafeteria at the college that I attended, this song was on the UK Top 40. It was always at the top of the UK Top 40 for like 12 weeks or something. During that 12 weeks, there was a a news story that someone in a tower block just kept playing it over and over and over and over and over again all day. And the neighbors kicked in their door and like threw their stereo out a 30-story window just to make (laughs) it stop. That made the news. That made the news over here because I remember them talking about it on MTV. Yep, it made the news and it was very funny to hear. And I remember uh, how happy I was the one week that that song was out of the UK number one spot. It got uh-huh. knocked out by, do you want to guess? I know, because we talked about it earlier, but yes. I'll make believe I don't know. Uh, no, I don't want to guess, Jeff. <laughs> it was knocked out by Faith No More's version of the Commodore's Easy for one week. Oh, wow. One cover song t- took out another cover song, huh? The day that Easy. Hit number one while we were cleaning the kitchen. All of us that were in the kitchen cleaning sang along with Easy, the same that, way most people sang along with "I Will Always Love You." So there was a there was some payback. This world does not deserve faith no more. Just like we don't deserve dogs. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up the week. June eighteenth is a, a, a pair of days for us, Bill. A, uh-huh. pay, a pair of special holidays. Okay. It is both International Picnic Day, and it is International Panic Day. Wow, that's a horrible day to be a bad speller, isn't it? <laughs> Definitely tough on the dyslexic in the audience. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh wait, 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 wait. I just have to bring the sandwiches. So I think your best course of action in that day would just to be put a bunch of ball pythons into the picnic basket and just like consolidate your time. You know? <laughs> just, I, I oh, hello. <laughs> hello, dearie. Let's see what we have in the picnic basket. Good God! <laughs> <laughs> or develop a, an irrational fear of ants. Another thing that oh, you that can do on too. International Picnic Day. Just don't leave the mayonnaise out on the picnic table like all afternoon then eat some because you won't see another International Picnic Day if you do that. I have an irrational fear of checkerboard tablecloths. <laughs> Take that basket away from me. <laughs> yes, I, I guess you can panic about being late to the picnic, which is a way to capture the spirit of both holidays. And if you go to a, a picnic that other people are having that you don't know, technically that's almost international, so... You could you could sure. certainly kill three birds with one stone, and then have them for lunch on the picnic. That's right. Moving on to the celebrity birthdays, June the twelfth, nineteen fifty, drummer and taradin cigarette enthusiast Bun E. Carlos, formerly the drummer of Cheap Trick. I don't. I think he gave the cigarettes up at some point, but I remember that as a trademark. The first time I saw them play Dream Police on a show called Pink Ladies and Jeff. Huh. That's uh yeah, yeah uh, an aviator sunglasses as as well. Yep. That's like the, that weird piece of trivia that always stuck out in my mind is I knew what brand of cigarette Bunny Carlos smoked. 
Mm. <laughs> he smoked uh, Taradins. As I was saying three times already in the show, I was just in Canada. And I was up in Canada to see my favorite band, Marillion. And because Marillion is such a niche band, it's going to attract the type of music fans that obsess like mm-hmm. I do. Right. And it was really funny. We were walking down the street and we were listening to some, you know, other conversation that was floating in. And the guy was like, yeah, I got a couple of concerts from Cheap Tricks and Bootlegs and it's uh, Bunny Carlos's last show. And it's like, what a weird thing to be like obsessing over. <laughs> But those are the kind of music fans that I was surrounded by, and I was happy to be surrounded by them because that's the level I work at. Right. All right, moving on. Moving on, June 13th, 1953, American comedian and actor Tim Allen, probably best known for the long-running TV show Home Improvement, which was very funny, but I will always remember him from his role in the super underrated comedy film Joe Somebody, which no one, I guess, saw but me. (laughs) Probably best known for Joe Somebody. I think I remember you bringing that up before, mm-hmm. but yes. I think you're seriously like the only person that ever brought it up. And I don't want to spoil it, but it's, it's a great movie with him and Jim Belushi as the main character. He's a guy who gets beaten up in front of his daughter by the bully at work, and it completely emasculates him. And he goes oh. and he, he, stu- he studies he studies karate with Jim Belushi, who's like Steven Seagal. Yes, it's awesome. okay, it's really funny. He's also probably best known for being in the Santa Claus. And he yes. also voices Buzz Lightyear in That's the right. Toy Story films. Yep. And he was the uh, commander in Galaxy Quest. And Tim Allen will also be uh, forever known for taking one joke, not even joke, one noise, and stretching it out over a very long stand-up comedian career. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the 14th, June the 14th, 1956. Danish singer, a guy named Kim Peterson, better known to the world as King Diamond. Oh, yeah. The first full-on, yep. like, satanic rocker. Heavy metal, Merciful Fate lead singer. Yes. The bane of my mother's existence when I was but a child. Yep. And at the time of the early goings of the satanic panic, when people were just like trying to stick Satan into any corner that they could. Yeah, KISS. It stands for Knights in Satan's Service or whatever. King Diamond was just like, nope, straight up Satan. You don't even have to <laughs> dig. It's like right here. His records are good. I mean, Merciful Fate's an unusual band. Danish, Scandinavian heavy metal in and of itself is weird. He was the leader of the first band that really kind of broke out at least that I can remember into the United States and set the stage for what would become death metal and black metal and uh, any other Scandinavian sky on of, of heavy metal that uses really, really fast guitars and alternating vocals that shriek and then sound like somebody gargling razor blades. Yeah. King Dime was never for me. A lot of my friends are super into him. The guy that played drums in my band for a lot of years actually had a side band that did like a King Diamond tribute show, like oh. complete with makeup and a woman in a, you know, an old lady mask in a wheelchair to do the grandma bits and all that. Right, right. And I just remember them playing at like the Whaling City Festival <laughs> to, to, a, to a baffled a, crowd. Yeah, to a very small crowd of people who did not know what the hell was going on. That is what? not the show. 
That is and not I, the show to be put on at the Wailing City Festival. Yeah. All I'm going to say is if they didn't call that tribute band King of Cubic Zirconia, they missed an opportunity. <laughs> um, let's move on to the 15th. June 15th, 1964. American actress Courtney Cox is born. She's probably best known as playing a character on Friends. I can no, tell she's I'm probably not, best I'm known not a fringe watcher, the, right? Wait, she's probably best known for the sitcom The Misfits of Science. Oh, she's probably best known for being the love interest in One Crazy Summer. Remember that? No, she wasn't in One Crazy Summer. That's Demi Moore. Oh, that is Demi Moore. I'm sorry. Yes. She's probably best known for being the love interest of Michael P. Keaton on Family Ties. Probably best known for playing, uh, I don't know, she was in Ace Ventura, wasn't she? <laughs> yeah. Probably best known for the Bruce Springsteen Dancing in the Dark video. <laughs> My God, yes. this girl's been around forever. She has indeed. Yeah. She has, and she has indeed. Yeah. Oh, wait. Probably best known for that horrible haircut in Scream 3. And the horrible haircut in uh, G.I. Jane. What is it with you and Demi Moore? Oh, that's right. I, I can't. I don't know the difference between the two of them. Sorry. Jesus Christ, Joe. <laughs> yeah, Courtney Cox has been around forever. God love her. But uh, even though she's been around forever and pretty much ubiquitous, here's my fancy word for today, mm. um, she's never been really like kind of in-your-face celebrity. You know what I mean? You know who she reminds me of? Demi Moore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to June the 16th, 1959. American wrestler Jim Helwig, better known to the rest of the planet, this planet, anyway, I don't know where he's actually from, uh, <laughs> better known as the Ultimate Warrior. The Ultimate Warrior! Not the first professional wrestler to test positive for being 55% cocaine at all times, but uh, one of the era, is is he from, I don't want to say it's not gold era, that's older wrestling, but he was no, like he was, when... Uh, WWF, that, when when it blew up, when it yeah. went like global, we, he was We call he that was the there. golden era now. Is it the golden era? Okay, so he, yeah. that, he was there when it went global. It was like him, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, and Macho um, Man Randy Savage. Macho Man Randy Savage. Savage. Yeah. Those, yeah, those are like the four faces on the Mount Rushmore of wrestling from that era. Sure. His is painted. <laughs> uh, so Ultimate Warrior wasn't much of a wrestler. The guy. Didn't really have a great move set. He cut some of the most confusing promos you've ever heard <laughs> in your life. Vince McMahon just wanted to... He was incredibly popular. And Vince McMahon just, like, strapped a rocket to his back. And he was, like, the first person to pin Hulk Hogan clean. Like, it, right. it wasn't a screw job ending. It was He was the first person to take the title off of Hulk Hogan clean. And McMahon thought that Ultimate Warrior was going to be the next big thing. Right. And the guy, the guy couldn't sell out nothing. The guy couldn't sell a single T-shirt. I well, I shouldn't say that, but he wasn't as big as Hogan was. Never was. Well, it's. I think part of it was because Hulk Hogan, when he did his promos, he there was like a fifty percent chance he would get a promo that was about wrestling and the, whatever the like the storylines were the beefs that they had at the time. And there's a 50% chance he was talking to like the little kids in the audience. Right. Yeah. When he did his promos, there was always like the, you know, be good to your parents and stay in school and be a good little Hulkamaniac. Right. And yeah. he, the ultimate warrior was just insane. 
So his pro, like if he tried to give promos to kids, they would have just been baffled. Oh yeah, and he used words that confuse you. <laughs> he used words that would confuse Herman Melville. Yeah, he's like, yes. "Fear is my destiny in the cauldron of the warriors." You don't pick up like the the fan base that grows with you and that you keep generating from younger to older when. Your like crazy rants border on screaming, terrifying the audience. You know, yeah. He was notoriously impossible to work with. There are several documentaries out there just giving you a shopping list of like how cuckoo bananas he was. Mm-hmm. He famously had a large time, you know, big falling out with uh, WWE and Vince McMahon. He was able to patch everything up the tail end of his life to be put into the. WWE Wrestling Hall of Fame. That was on, we'll say, Friday night. On Monday, uh, he appeared on... Well, that was WrestleMania weekend. So Friday night, he was at the Hall of Fame being inducted. Uh, Sunday, he was at WrestleMania, you know, waving at the crowd. On Monday, they allowed him to come down to the ring to kind of, like, say thank you because he hadn't appeared on WWE TV in a very long time. And he said his thank yous, and he took his bows, and he left. And... He was dead 48 hours later. He died of a massive heart attack at 54. Yeah, it's it's that it sucks. He was a yep. he was a character, you know. He definitely was and I'm glad he kind of made his peace with the business with Vince and with the fans before he went. Yep. Always good to have that kind of like last legacy. I, I mean, if you're going to go, that's it's better to yep. go that way. Yeah, better than to die in disgrace, I guess. Right, right, right. Let's get to a much more exciting and happier birthday, yep. Bill. You ready? June yes. 17th, 1870, George Cormack. Do you know who he is? He invented the nope. most exciting breakfast flakes ever. He invented Wheaties, Bill. He's the inventor of Ooh. Wheaties. You know, that breakfast cereal is as bland as you can get. Like, cornflakes are pretty bland, and then Wheaties are, like, worse somehow. I don't know how. <laughs> Wheaties make Raisin Bran taste like tacos. They are to wheat what cornflakes is to corn, I guess you could say. I guess. Uh, but somehow brilliant marketing behind it because there are people in Generation X and boomers that will still use the phrase, you must be eating your Wheaties to the confusion of uh, Zillennials everywhere. What the hell are you talking about? Right. Uh, I'm sure people are still trading like, I've got the box of Wheaties with Michael Jordan on it. (laughs) I'm sure that you don't want to eat that cereal. Yeah, if you were an athlete, that was like the, the rite of passage. If you got your face on the box of Wheaties, you had made it, sir. You'd made it. Not only had you made it, you made a lot of money. Yeah, uh, sir or madam. Yeah. Check. yeah, sir or madam. They also Wheaties was also known for putting a lot of American Olympians onto the boxes. But as yep. long as they did it after the Olympics had taken place, when they could be paid for their athleticism, otherwise yep. they'd get disqualified from the Olympics. Right. I remember Mary Lou Retton being on there in particular. Yes. It, it, it didn't matter who was on the box. The cereal still tasted like kind of like sand. Yeah. Flakes of sand. Yeah. It just didn't, you it didn't really have much had going to on. like dump packets of sugar onto it to make yeah. it palatable. Which I think just, that's what gave it, you the energy is the yeah. sugar. Like you have to put a half a cup of sugar on just to choke it down. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and then wrapping up the birthdays, June the eighteenth, nineteen forty-two, movie critic extraordinaire and turtle shell glasses uh, enthusiast <laughs> Roger Ebert, uh, probably best known for At the Movies with Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> oh, probably best known for writing re- the Return of the Valley of the Dolls in nineteen like sixty eight. He wrote that terrible oh. sequel. 
Oh, did he? Yeah. He wrote that? Beyond, beyond, the, beyond the Valley of the Dolls. That's the one he wrote. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's an Ebert. An Ebert special. Oh, wow. um, he was he wanted to be a screenwriter, but really made his mark as a film reviewer for the Chicago Sun-Times. And he was a fundamental part of my growing up as, a, as someone who was interested in writing. Because his movie reviews that I had watched him deliver on first on a show called Coming Attractions, which was a PBS movie review show, and then on another show that was on regular TV called At The Movies. Yep. I started buying compilations of his newspaper reviews each year. He would release a a compendium of all of his reviews, plus whatever new reviews he'd added. And I would buy it every January and would spend hours and hours and hours reading through how he described films and how he described plots and all of those things. And it's one of those foundational pieces that helped make me a writer was his his writing about film and storytelling what a odd inspiration for writing i never read read his reviews i just remember him from you know the two thumbs up which Mm -hmm. was you know ubiquitous in american pop culture at the time for his movie reviews tv show there you know at the movies with uh with siskel and ebert right uh matter of fact up until we started recording the show, I wasn't really sure which one was Siskel and which one was Ebert. I had to ask you, you know, was he the, uh, you know, the short one? And he's not really short. He just looks short next to the other guy. Right. He and Siskel were friends and rivals. They both wrote for Chicago papers. They were paired on the show and would get into, like, very vociferous arguments about the merits of one film. Vociferous. Vociferous. Uh, over, you know, one take on a film versus another. But when they unified in their hatred of a film, it was really funny. There are some some great examples of their arguing about stuff on YouTube that have been, you know, clipped out of old shows and pasted up there that are worth uh, checking out. And definitely go read his reviews if you can. They're really good. You know what's funny is I'm looking up the, the definition for, for vociferous right now because I have no idea what you're talking about. Yep. And... It gives me the, a definition. Two other words I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Clamorous <laughs> and vehement. Yes. So loud and loud and angry is what it means. Oh, okay. Very good. Vociferous. Um, Vociferous. Yeah. When they liked a movie, they you know they couldn't shut up about it. But when it came down to a movie like you know Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, they treated it like. <laughs> Worst song ever. Okay, Jeff. Um, <laughs> this week's worst song ever is kind of not even a song. It's more of a movement. It's a lifestyle, Bill. A lifestyle. Yeah, the worst movement ever, yeah. <laughs> it's um, like a bowel a- movement. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us what we're talking about this week, guys? Because you're the one All who right. brought it up. Today we are talking about... Uh, an organization, uh, believe it or not, that released records and encouraged American young people to join them in singing songs about how great it is to be an American young person. And it's an organization called Up With People. And you can go to find them doing all manner of very Pat Boonish versions of very Pat Boonish already songs online. But they've been around since like the Eisenhower administration. Yeah. Until the so, end of the 1990s. Right. So, um, and they actually kind of still exist in one form or another. But before we get into this, like, deep dive about that, 
Uh, I'm going to play the Up With People theme. Theme song, Now, this has been recorded and re-recorded a number of times. But the one I'm going with, this is from 1991, okay? This Mm -hmm. is Up With People singing Up With People. to just realize something in the big scale of things okay this song that they were promoting this happened at the same time as Nevermind from nirvana <laughs> these these two things existed at the same time plane as one another and then they wonder why up with people like died you know or died off or whatever it was they've always been a victim of whatever popular music has been around at a given time so when they started in the 1960s as they started to release records they were releasing records at the same time that the beatles the rolling stones pink floyd jethro tull were starting to release records yep. then they were releasing records in the 1970s where which is where the bulk of their success really is because debbie boone and a bunch of <laughs> other like g- 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 yeah, Captain, adult con- Captain and Tennille, adult yeah, contemporary, they fit right? Right in with the whole adult contemporary thing. So we haven't really even touched upon what Up with People is. Up with People is a collective. There's a mm. few key principal songwriters, but Up with People itself is a group of young people. I'm not going to say teenagers because it can vary. I think the age range was like 17 to 29 or something like that. They were like Menudo if Menudo was a group of a thousand people and they all came from Branson, Missouri. Yeah, there'd be a couple of hundred in there. And like one or two people would take over like the lead vocals, but the rest was this, this like mush chorus of people. And all the songs were... You know, pretty benign, pretty innocent and all. And it actually started up as a counter to the counter culture, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. It does. In the 50s, we had this new thing that started existing called teenagers. Uh, <laughs> I mean, pe- people in their teens existed, obviously, prior to right. the 50s. But teenagers as a force didn't. You know, right. So yes. by the time the 60s rolled around, there was a lot of like, you know, protests against the Vietnam War and other things mm-hmm. and all that, you know, kind of not all that different to the way things are now. It's just that, the you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss kind of a thing. Right. So in an effort to counteract the counterculture, this Up With People project, which has cult written all over it. <laughs> well, it does come out of a religious movement, which is not a surprise yes. at all. Right. It came out of a religious movement called the Moral Rearmament, which is terrifying, just to say. <laughs> so this guy named Blanton Belk, and that's his name, um, yep. he was due to take over uh, this Moral Rearmament movement, but he decided to break away and incorporate up with people as a nonprofit 
after your friend of mine, Dwight Eisenhower, urged him to distance himself from what is listed here as the dreary image behind the, uh, the MRA. Yeah, that definitely. It's there. If they're more dreary than up with people, I'm not sure what they could possibly yeah. be. And to watch performances of Up With People, especially this one that I pulled from 1991. Now, Up With People was supposed to be open to all races, creeds, colors, every, you know, every, it was supposed to be dynamic, just a world organization. And if there was somebody that looked, um, watch how delicately I put this, less European, than some of the others, they would put them as far out in front as possible just to show off their diversity and all. But right. this is the whitest thing you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely, it's mayonnaise on Wonder Bread for sure. There is and not there, a fleck, there is not a fleck of soul in any of this. This is just no. horrible. And yeah. So Upward People was way more popular as a, tool of diplomacy than they ever were as a popular music act here in the U.S. However, what they were generally used for was to go to places that had shifting political alliances, parts of the Middle East and parts of Eastern Europe that weren't incorporated into the Soviet Union, where upward people would go and play for, like, the king or the prime minister or the prime minister's family or the dignitaries at this place to show how great the West is. This is this is where the West is. Like, look at how happy we are, right? Mm-hmm. Aren't we great? You should let us build a factory in the middle of your city. We probably won't poison everybody, but some of them, no, no, really, it's going to be great. Um, (laughs) And because there were so many companies that were feeding money into this organization to get ultimately access to other foreign markets using (laughs) up with people of all things as an entry point, they eventually turned it towards the United States and used the greatest platform in American popular culture to shove them out into the zeitgeist and do you know what that platform of American popular culture is, Bill? I know goddamn well what it is because they performed it four of them. The <laughs> Up With People was the halftime act at the Super Bowl before yeah. the halftime act at the Super Bowl was something to watch. Right. When they decided they'd rather have a bunch of these twirling Caucasians singing exclamation points and or parts of like modern music that's been boulderized or turned into Pat Booneisms in place of a marching band during the Super Bowl, that's what you ended up with. You ended up with Up With People. If you watch the Super Bowl versions of Up With People, it's like watching like the North Korean Ararang games. It's, <laughs> you can put them both side by side and you're like, I don't know which one is which. It's only when they show close-ups. And it, I, one of them is all Koreans and one of them is all not Koreans. And that's the only, only way you can tell them apart. I'm reading something right now. It says, with simple chord progressions and childish lyrics, the group's ditties can best be described as insipid. Insipid. Yeah, yeah. which insipid. means... Having no flavor. It's like Wheaties. Yes. It's like, it's like a less, it's like a more bland version of Wheaties. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they were uh, financially backed by a lot of like big corporation names, Coca-Cola, Pfizer, GE, Coors, Toyota, on and on and on and on and on. Dow Chemical, Raytheon, I'm sure. So they, you know, this all existed until around 2000. Uh, they performed at the uh, inauguration for George W. Bush, uh, oddly enough. Not that odd, actually, considering it was George W. Bush. So, but after a while, you know, the the corporate sponsorship kind of like ran its course. So they actually started charging people to be part of their organization. 
like right. a, a tuition, if you will. That actually started in the uh, early 70s. So in 1972, if you were going to join up with people, it would cost you $2,400. That's a lot of jingle in 1972. Yes. Um, and I'm sure that that... You know, you probably had to pay for some of your own travel too, and yeah. Well, no, um, they would have there were other costs associated. Yeah, they would have uh, people like put them up in houses and stuff like that, and feed them and stuff. You, you could volunteer to be a part of that. I guess you'd get some. That must have been great. Yeah, that, you must. Have, oh my god, can you imagine? <laughs> Just as like these the families that hosted up with people, people. Oh my god, these two teenage teenagers <laughs> in your house with cargo pants just staring at you and grinning. <laughs> Can you sing that song again about the flowers on the flag? I remember there was a a guy in my neighborhood. I don't even want to say his name because, like I said, cult. Uh, And I don't want to get him, you know, accidentally murdered. We'll just say his name. Before you know it, you'll have a choreographed gang just dancing on your front lawn. Get out of here with your tan pants. (laughs) And your yellow sweater vest. The hell's wrong with you? Why are you wearing that? Uh, anyway, this guy, I think his name was Richard, but he really, really wanted to join up with people and he was like doing like fundraisers to get the tuition and all. And then later on, he was running for public office in the area, I think like a councilman or something. Yep. That was like his campaign slogan, up with Richard. Up with Richard. It's like, it wasn't dude, up yours, Richard. Yeah. And it's like, dude, you, do you know who cares about up with people besides yourself and like maybe your mom? Nobody. Right. It, it was really, really corny by the uh, by the 80s. And it just kind of like died. It was really, really corny by the 1960s. Yes. I mean, it just continued to be corny from then to, to the 80s where it was the equivalent of a dinosaur sh- shambling around and then keeling over. Yeah. Up with people, just like a lot of stuff in pop culture was like the safe version of something else. Yeah. You know, and it's horrible. And they have several, several, they have a bunch of albums. Yep. They have albums starting with 1966, uh, an album every year, just about straight through 1983. Then they took a break and, um, their most recent album is up with people live on tour in 2018. Wow. I'm sure that the locations they're playing are vast and varied. Yeah. The pandemic put an end to them, which is, you know, score one for the pandemic, I guess. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't so bad. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'll tell my kids about it. That wasn't so bad. I got rid of up with people. That was was pretty good. (laughs) All right, Jeff. I'm going to write down... I'm going to write down an entero bang. Here we are. We're back. All right. And our very popular and always well-received trivia question. Jeff, I just wrote down an entero bang on a sheet of paper over here. What did I draw? An entero bang is like the unholy spawn of a question mark and an exclamation point jammed together. Uh, it's used at the end of a sentence that's really loud and or uh, excited but questioning at the same time. That's the punctuation mark that it is it's a punctuation mark so basically it's also not found on many keyboards you have to go hunt for it in the special character section or you could just write an an exclamation point and yeah yeah, question mark mark. right after it yeah so uh if you're going to use it properly in a sentence it's you need money for up with people (laughs) in terror bag (laughs) All right, but that's going to wrap up the show for this week we will see you back here in seven days say good night jeff Good night, Jeff. 
A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us on messages over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, when you tell your friends and get them to listen to Twibbly, it makes you popular and always well-received.